could be turning there. We are continuing our series in First Peter. Our series entitled Living as Elect Exiles. Learning from First Peter will be verses ten through twelve today. And we're just really starting this series in this wonderful book and I pray that you are being built up and refreshed in truth and equipped for walking with God and serving His purposes. We have some more wonderful truths to look at in verses 10 through 12 this morning. Peter has really in this first section been addressing his readers and drawing attention to the wonderful salvation that they enjoy. It's really been 12 verses of celebration and explanation of the wonder of salvation. And so verses 10 and 12 will fit into that flow in these uh, 12 verses of introduction to the entire letter. Let's pray as we prepare to hear from God's Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You that You speak to us through Your Word. That, that these words are not just letters put together and just meaningless words. They are Your words. And there's power in them. And through these words and the power of the Holy Spirit, You work wonders in us and through us. And we just thank You for that, Lord. We thank You that You're here with us today to minister through Your Word for our good and Your glory. And so, Lord, we ask that You would come in power. You'd grant me power to serve Your precious people. You'd grant all of us ears to hear from You, Lord, that You Yourself would speak to us and we would be changed by You. We thank You for this incredible mercy and grace and we anticipate what You'll do, Lord, in this time. We thank You in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Verse, starting in verse 10 in chapter 1. Peter's been speaking of salvation. So he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you, to those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12. through 12. Again, Peter has been celebrating the wonder of salvation in these verses, these 12 verses. He's called us to see and know the joy in our salvation over and over again in these 12 verses. This book that is on living as Christians amidst trials really starts with Peter calling our attention and continues throughout the book highlighting this, but calling our attention to joy. The joy of our salvation. So he's been doing that. 
He's given us reason for joy in these 12 verses. He's helped us to understand the realities around our joy of trials. He's given us the recipe for joy of faith, hope, and love and leading to joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. And now He's doing one last thing in this section on the joy of our salvation, the wonder of our salvation. He wants the readers to understand, and God, through Peter, wants us to understand the privileged place we have in salvation history. He wants us to know, He wants His readers to know where they fit in the storyline. And He wants us to know that that we might rightly interpret life. That we might rightly understand this world we live in. That we might have the right state of mind and the right heart that will propel us and sustain us in the lifestyle that we're called to. And much of the rest of the book talks about this lifestyle we're called to. Peter wants to understand where we fit in the story. He wants that to affect how we think and how we feel and how we live and and to affect us in trials and in good times. Really, a secret of success for believers is how they think about themselves, how they think about their life as believers, and whether or not they are characterized by thankfulness and joy. In many ways, a thankful, joyful Christian is a successful Christian. A thankless, dour Christian is going to be and ultimately is a disobedient Christian. And so this section of Scripture is about learning to be thankful, learning to be joyful as we fix our eyes on God's goodness to us in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's about God-exalting, Spirit-empowered, Christ-centered joy that we might live in this even amidst Trials, actually especially amidst trials. And so what he's doing here is he wants us to see the historical context for our joy in Christ. And he wants us to understand that as believers, living between the resurrection and the return of Christ, in many ways we find ourselves at the center of the stage of redemptive history. He wants us to understand this privileged place we have that we are at the center of the stage of redemptive history. We are on stage there with Christ, who is ultimately at the center, and the prophets are looking on, even the angels are looking on, as we experience and walk out this salvation, leading to an ultimate climax and conclusion of an amazing cosmic drama of God's redemption in Christ, His exaltation of Christ, and His bringing glory to Himself and good to His people. It's so important for us to understand this, to understand where we fit, and to understand the wonder of it. I think many of us struggle in life, be it in trials or be it in good times, because we we forget. We forget about what we have. We forget about the joy of our salvation. We are not aware or not thankful for the amazing grace of being included in Christ. Or if we are aware of that, perhaps we just don't understand what life's about. Yeah, I get the fact that I'm blessed in Christ, but why why does this happen to me? Why are things not going how I wanted them to go? 
We don't understand the nature and the purpose of this epic that the Lord has brought us into in Christ. And so we can struggle. Have you guys ever heard of uh, improv comedy or improv TV or any of that sort of stuff? Have you seen that? Where That's the sort of thing where they put people up on stage and they, they don't know the situation and then they give them a, just a basic situation and they have to act it out or whatever. It's often very funny um, to watch what happens. It's often funny because you watch people in the improv and they really, they're trying to figure out what's going on, what they're supposed to do. Sometimes what they'll do is they'll put up professional comedians and they'll pick someone out of the audience and put them up on the stage. And it's just a ride to watch the people trying to figure out how to act and they're all stiff and I don't know what I'm supposed to do and the comedians have, have a lot of fun. It's inter- entertaining to, to watch improv. Perhaps it might be entertaining to participate in it. Um, but can you imagine if you went to the theater district in Boston and you thought you were going to see a nice comedy, you were just going to sit there in the audience and just enjoy this comedy and all of a sudden they called you up on stage threw you into the midst of this, and it was no longer a comedy, it was some sort of drama, and you had to play your part in the drama, and you just didn't quite get what you're supposed to do. Where are we going with this thing? What is my character supposed to be? How am I supposed to relate to people? Sometimes the Christian life is like that for us, and we're the people on the stage wondering, Lord, what is going on? What's the plot line here? What's my part? What are you doing? How should I relate to these other actors? We find ourselves on center stage, but not quite knowing how we got there, not having a sense who we are and where we're going. Peter understands that propensity. And so he's written to his people this letter, and God has preserved his letter for us, because God understands our propensity to forget and to not know. And He wants us to understand what has happened, where we stand in redemptive history, and what is the nature of this thing that's going on here. And so He gives us this wonderful truth in verses 10-12 through 12, so that we might understand. Understand that we are recipients and participants in the much-anticipated reign of God's King, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets longed for the day. They had a hint of the day coming. They longed for this day. And they searched what they received to to perceive better the specifics of Christ and His kingdom. The angels stand in awe at the kingdom and at salvation and what God has done. And we are privileged Recipients and participants in all of this. And God wants us to be awestruck by grace and propelled by hope in our lives and animated by joy as we live in fellowship with Christ, both in His sufferings and in His glories. And so Peter wants us to understand this. God wants us to understand us. And basically, we could sum it up that we are privileged participants in the salvation of Christ. The salvation that is the wonder of the prophets. The salvation that is the marvel of the angels. So that's how we're going to talk about this passage. We're going to talk about this salvation that is the wonder of the prophets. We're going to talk about this salvation that is the marvel of the angels. And then we're going to spend some time thinking about how privileged we are to participate in this epic drama of salvation.
So the wonder of the prophets. Peter says, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. These prophets, these Old Testament prophets, they experienced God speaking to them and through them in the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, also called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was speaking to them and through them. And, and they heard of Christ pictures, glimpses of the glory of this coming King and, and, and all that He would bring. And we spent some time, actually, the series before our first Peter series, we looked at some of these prophecies. Do you guys remember? Some of the things we looked at, we spent time examining Christ in the Old Testament. And we just took time showing that these prophecies, these things about Christ are all throughout the Old Testament. In many ways, the New Testament is really the, a commentary on all that has happened in the Old Testament, all that was predicted in the Old Testament, and ultimately fulfilled by Christ. And so the Old Testament is full of these prophetic words. So we looked at many things. We looked at Jesus as the suffering servant, conquering king from Isaiah and 45, we looked at Jesus as the second Adam, Jesus the seed of Abraham, Jesus the Lamb of God, Jesus the new Moses, Jesus the temple, Jesus the greater David, Jesus the light for the nations, Jesus the spirit anointed one, Jesus the capstone, Jesus the resurrection, Jesus the judge of all men, all from the Old Testament. There's a whole series we did for, I don't know, was it six, nine months on Christ in the Old Testament, just looking at these things, these prophetic Words given by the prophets. And Peter speaks of these prophets and that they prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. It was to be ours. And they searched and they inquired carefully. They didn't always understand what they were saying. But they caught glimpses of glory in it. They heard things and they saw things that were amazing, that piqued their interest. And, and they longed to know what is this you're going to do. Many of you perhaps have read about Daniel, and you can put that verse up. Daniel received things from God about what he was going to do in time. And he saw glimpses of glory, and, and he asked at one point in chapter 12, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? What's going to go on? What's happening? And he was given the answer, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Daniel you're not going to know the fullness. But Daniel saw a glimpse of glory. Jesus says later in Matthew 13 to His disciples, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They caught a glimpse of glory, the glory of the King, and they longed, I want more of this. What are you doing, Lord? What will you do? And they didn't get to know the full story, at least then. They were kind of like kids on Christmas Eve. They got to pick up the present and shake it around a little bit and listen. And they felt the heaviness of it. Said, oh, there's something good in here. Something really good. But they couldn't open it. They peered into the mystery of Christ from behind the curtain and they saw soul-captivating glory, and they wanted to know more. 
But Peter says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Ultimately, certainly to a degree it served them in their generation, but ultimately these words were for who? Us. They saw that they were serving not themselves, but us. Peter wants to bring that point home. Folks, you're the ones who get to open the Christmas gift on Christmas morning and know the fullness of forgiveness and salvation in Christ. To know the fullness of the revelation of God's plan in Christ and to participate in that and with the prophets and the people of old to realize ultimately its ultimate fulfillment on that final day. We get to open the Christmas present. We get to experience this grace that they spoke of. We live in the fullness of this amazing grace. Peter speaks of the prophets. And he talks of someone else who's marveling at this grace. The prophets spoke of it in the Old Testament. They looked forward to it. They saw glory. But they didn't get to, at least then, experience the fullness of it. There were others as well spoken of in this passage. It's bookended by two groups. The prophets and there's someone else marveling at this grace, this salvation. Who's that in the passage? Bookended. The front end, there's the prophets. The end of the verse, it's the angels. Peter leaves us with that short phrase, things angels long to look into. Not many words, but full, full of meaning. Things into which angels long to look. You know, there's my bet, if we were to bet, there's probably nothing more thrilling to look into than what the angels are thrilled about looking into. There's nothing more worthwhile considering than the thing that causes the angels to gawk. And that's the sense of they're looking into it. It's not just kind of like a casual glance looking into. The, the, the word for that is the same word that's used in John 20.11 when Mary stoops down to look into the tomb. It's not just kind of a walk-by casual glance. It's an earnest inquiry. What's going on in that tomb? Is there anybody? Why is it open? Is there anyone in there? I don't understand. That's the sort of looking that the angels are looking into the Gospel and salvation. What is going on here? What has God done? I don't understand. It's glorious. How? Why would the Holy One stoop to such a low level to redeem His enemies? Why would He give His life on the cross? Why would He bear the sins of these ones? To rescue them. What is this? What sort of God do we serve? Those are the sort of things I think the angels are thinking and asking. These are mighty angels too. These aren't just casual Joe people peering into things. These are glorious, mighty angels. If you look in Scripture, our current culture kind of treats angels, they've domesticated angels. Angels are like little pets to have around your house and stuff. The angels in Scripture are not like that. What is the first thing angels usually say to people when they encounter them? Fear not. Do not be afraid. Why do they say that? Because the people are really afraid. That's why. Angels are things that make your knees knock. They're glorious. They're huge. 
And when people encountered the angels, they were very afraid. These are glorious, magnificent beings. And they are gawking and wondering at this salvation that God has brought to us. Things angels long to look into. In the book entitled Deadline by Randy Alcorn, a book I've read and many of you probably have enjoyed as well, he gives an imaginative glimpse into the wonder of the angels over the Gospel. And in the, the book, one of the main characters is a guy named Finney who, who's a believer. He dies and goes to heaven. And he's in heaven and, and Alcorn, who actually has some theological books on heaven as well, has this fictional book and, and kind of paints a picture of what it's like in heaven as Finney interacts with the angel that has had responsibility for his life, an angel he named Zior. It's all imaginative. And the angel... And the angels call God uh, Elyon, kind of a derivative of one of God's names. So they call God Elyon. And I want to just read you a little bit because it paints a picture, I think, of what's going on perhaps with the angels. So Finney is interacting with this character, Zior, in heaven. So let's listen in to this conversation. I think we have it up on the screen. Zior proclaimed the archangel's unforgettable words of old. The unborn child now living in this Galilean peasant girl is the creator of the universe. When Michael, the archangel, saw the shock on our faces, Zyre continued, he added simply, Elion has become a human child. The Son of God is now the Son of Man. Finney marveled not only at what Zyre was telling him, but that the angel never ceased to wonder at an event millions on earth affirmed in the doctoral statements with such little wonder at all. With hardly more than a second thought, to Zyor, Christmas was not making a list and shopping at a mall. It was the heart and soul of the cosmos itself. And just when we thought Elyon could not surpass this greatest miracle with another, there came the greater one. Zyor stood and his voice trembled, not only with awe, but with unmistakable Anger. That little hill where little men were permitted to do unspeakable things to Elion's son. My comrades and I jammed against the portal, begging permission to break through and strike down the cowards to unleash the relentless wrath of heaven's army. We longed to raise our swords as one to destroy every atom of the dark world. All that was in us thirsted for revenge. We ache to once and for all obliterate the cancer of rebellion against the Most High God. The conversation continues. And then he says, But Michael would not permit us. Michael the archangel, Zior said softly. For Elion would not permit him. We writhed in agony, Zior continued. We had never thought such pain possible here in the perfect realm. And yet we grew to know though not completely understand that all this was necessary to meet the demands of Elion's justice and his love. He did not need us to rescue him. With a single word, with merely a thought, he could have unmade all men, destroyed the universe, purged all creation of the ugliness that nailed him to the cross. But he did not. He would not. He did not go there to be rescued. He went there to rescue. 
I can say the words which attempt to explain what happened on that day when Elion's son died. Zaya drew a deep breath. But they are only words. I will never understand it. Yet, I will never give up contemplating it. And I will never run out of time to do so or ever lack the company of those who share my quest and are eager to contemplate the wonder with me. And of all the adventures eternity will bring, most of which I can no more guess than you, the fact that Elyon was slain to buy the souls of men will overshadow everything. May his name be forever praised. These, Master Finney, are things you will never full understand either. Yet I sense that in some ways you already understand them better than I. You are, after all, among those created in His image, among those for whom He died. You are the bride of Christ. I am merely the servant who attends the wedding and rejoices for both bride and groom. You are among the privileged people. Those in the far reaches of the universe marvel at and shall marvel for eternity. Things angels long to look into. These things are ours. They are amazed by grace. We experience this grace. They, more than anything, they are there to serve the Lord and to worship His glory. And in doing that, more than anything, they glory in and wonder at the Gospel of Christ. God the Son given for sinners for the glory of God. The prophets wonder. The angels marvel. And we are extremely privileged as believers. That's what Peter wants us to understand in this section. He wants us to understand just how amazing it is that we are here at the center of the stage in redemptive history, included in Christ. These things the prophets look forward to and long for. These things the angels marvel at. These are things that belong to us. This salvation. This forgiveness. So Peter speaks of the revelation given to the prophets by the Spirit of Christ. And then he speaks of the fact that we have received revelation. These things have been announced to us through those who preach the good news to you, to us, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The same Spirit of God that came and worked in those prophets and gave them a glimpse of glory so that they spoke of it and longed for it. That same Spirit, if you are a believer, if you have turned from your sins and placed your faith in Christ, that same glorious Spirit has revealed glory to you. Has shown you that this is not just a story. This is not just interesting content. This is glory revealed from God. God Himself dying for your sins. And if you have, are a believer, you have gazed at the cross. And the Spirit has spoken to you. And you've seen glory. You've been captivated by such a Savior that would humble Himself. God Almighty and all-glorious on the cross for you and your sins. Little old you. Sinful you. Sinful me. By the Spirit of God Himself, He has revealed to you glory in that. And you treasure what went on on the cross. 
You are captivated by the Savior. You are transformed by Him as you have beheld His love and His atoning death. And you have experienced power from Him as well. That same power that raised Him from the dead is yours. And as you have contemplated that empty tomb, you have recognized, I know Him. He is mine. He is my Savior. And He has been raised from the dead. And so I have power and I have life and I have hope. He has conquered sin and death and therefore in Him I have conquered sin and death. You have seen glory as well by the same Holy Spirit. This is true for every believer. You may not feel it time to time, but you have. That same revelation is your revelation. And that's where power for life is. In that revelation, animated, made alive by the Holy Spirit, as you contemplate that, it's not just remembering things. It's not just rehearsing things. It's encountering the glory of the living God. And you have known that. These things are ours. Peter, in this passage again and again, uses the word you or yours. He wants to bring home the point. This is yours. Your salvation. This is what you have. You have experienced. You know this. These promises are for you. This grace is yours, he says. They spoke of the grace that was to be yours. They spoke in the past of the grace that was to be yours, which means this grace is ours. Now, it's grace. That wonderful, wonderful word that we sang about, of grace. Grace is an undeserved gift given freely and apart from any merit whatsoever. Entirely free. Entirely unmerited. There's no importing anything you did into grace. It wouldn't be grace. It would be merit. Grace is free from any merit. There's nothing that you've done to earn it. If you are a believer, there's nothing you can do to unearn it, it's grace. It's free. It's yours. And grace means that we, though we were sinners, though we were rebels, though we continue to be rebels at times and struggle with that, because of Christ's death for us on the cross to satisfy God's perfect and holy justice, there is total, free, eternal forgiveness. Past, present, and future for all of us. Total, complete forgiveness. And that's only the beginning. That's only the beginning. That's wonderful alone that we're forgiven. But that forgiveness means we're reconciled to Him. And, and we are caught up with Him. That, that we are united with Christ. And the things that He did, His righteousness, the things that earned Him eternal glory are ours now. So His glory, and Peter talks about His sufferings and subsequent glories, those glories are our glories. That inheritance is our inheritance. That eternal bliss at His Father's side that He has known and earned is our bliss. Grace is amazing because not only is it entirely undeserved, but it is rich and deep and full. And we, as believers, live in this world under grace. Under grace. Grace. Grace 
Only grace, always grace, fully grace. We are secure in grace. We are received in grace. We are kept in grace. We are comforted in grace. We're changed by grace. We live in this inescapable grace. We are privileged people as believers. These things that the prophets saw, these things that the angels wondered at, these things are ours. And we live in this season of amazing grace. This is the age of grace. This is the time. And certainly God has always worked by grace, but the fullness of it has come in Christ. This wonderful time between His resurrection and return is a time of grace. It's a time, a day of salvation where He's calling all people to Himself. He's calling us to live in this grace. And His grace is active. The Gospel is going forth. The the purposes of God in part in this age are to propagate this Gospel of grace to affect all peoples that everywhere, every tribe and language and tongue would hear about this amazing grace. And we get to live in this age. There's really no better time in history to live than this time. In this epic time. And I believe also, though Scripture doesn't say this specifically, I believe that personally, there's no better time to live than right now. And personally, I believe there's no better place to be than here in New England, in this stage. Because grace has come. And grace is working. And I believe God is working through the Gospel, doing glorious things here and beyond us as well. There's no guarantee of the particulars here. Scripture doesn't give those to us. But the generalities are guarantees that we are recipients of grace. We live in this time of grace, of the Gospel. But, but the specifics, when we look around us, are pretty amazing. And I've shared these things with you guys. You know, some of you have heard these things. China is seeing 10,000 converts a day right now. India has uh, been drastically affected by the Gospel. The Gospel is going forward in India in amazing ways. And they are facing real suffering and persecution. And we're going to talk a little bit about that briefly. The province of Nagaland uh, had any, barely any Christians a century ago. Right now, it has more Baptists than the state of Mississippi. It's full of believers, 90% professing believers in the province of Nagaland in India. That's all within a generation. 8,000 conversions per day in Latin America. Korea has gone from 1 to 45 million believers in one generation. And here in New England, we are seeing some wonderful things. There's been probably 100 to 150 church plants in the past eight years in Massachusetts alone. It's as if God's saying, come over here and help us. Come over here. Come to this place. They need the Gospel. This is the uh, six of the top ten least religious states in the country are the New England states. But there's wonderful things going on. The church attendance at Gospel preaching churches has grown 20 to 30% in the past eight years. 20 to 30 percent. The population overall in Massachusetts is shrinking. Attendance at gospel preaching churches has grown in the the North Shore area. 20 to 30 percent. God is at work in this place that was formerly considered the preacher's graveyard. The gospel of grace is on the move. And God's doing things. It's finding its mark. And we are the objects of this wonderful salvation. These things are ours. And Peter hints at in this section and talks about it more that part of this salvation means we are united with Christ. 
And the part that we have to understand, if we're to understand the nature of this epic, is that yes, indeed, there are glories, but there's sufferings too. That Christ came and He suffered. God's plan for the Son of God was that He would suffer and in His suffering accomplish God's purposes of redemption. And if we are His, we are called into the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings and in His subsequent glories. Now, our sufferings don't merit forgiveness. They don't atone for sin. But they do accomplish much. And we are called to to fellowship with Him in His sufferings. These sufferings we learned about in the past two messages, they work in our lives. I think first, what they do is they show the gold that's inside. They show for the angels that are looking on and all of history that are looking on that there's something here going on in these people that's bigger and better than anything this world can dish out. The very worst trial that the world might think is overcome by the one who has gold, the gold of Christ in them and salvation. That's part of what's going on, is God showing forth the glory and the wonder of knowing Christ, of Christ in us. And so He uses sufferings, He uses hardships to, to prove that and to show that forth. So if you are suffering, it's not, it's not for no reason. It's for a reason to show that the One who has overcome lives in you. And therefore, you overcome. He also works change in our lives. He makes us like Christ. He gives us greater joy. But to know Christ is to share in the fellowship of His sufferings. And it's really in many ways the exception not to know suffering. And that's part of the problem sometimes because we go to that theater and we think we're there for a comedy sitting down and all of a sudden we're called up on stage and like, whoa, wait a second, I didn't want a tragedy drama. Please, can I sit back down? But there's a fellowship of sharing his sufferings. And much of the history of the church, and nowadays, much of the church in the world, they know what they're on stage for. And for them, it's an everyday reality as they're persecuted, as they suffer, as they're impoverished. And we as Americans have got used to the comedy. We have to recognize it isn't a comedy. It's a glorious drama. And it means suffering. And it means experiencing and tasting the glories too. They both go together. Peter's going to talk about that more. We will visit that more as well. We share in the fellowship of His sufferings and His glories. And it's interesting in Scripture that those things are both there, but the accent is actually on the glories. It's not not negating the sufferings. They are real and we must acknowledge them. But the accent is on the wonder of the glories and what's accomplished through the sufferings. And so Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These sufferings are nothing. When you get to be there and you see the fullness of the glory, you're going to say that that wasn't anything, really. That wasn't that hard at all. And it might have been, as far as this world's concerned, the worst thing that could have ever happened to you. To lose your health, to lose your job, to lose loved ones. This world, this world is crushed by those things. But compared to the glories that are yours, and you'll know fully, you're going to say that, that wasn't anything. The glories that await us are magnificent and deep and rich. We can't even put it in words. We can't even understand it. It made me think about when uh, a few years ago we went to Italy. 
And uh, we loved a lot of things about Italy. And one of the things that we loved is the food. Um, the food was excellent. And it seemed that everything that we ate over there was just really good. And there was like, a, a, it was like another dimension of eating for us. It's hard to communicate. Now, maybe it was all my imagination, but, but everything was so good. I think what it was is that they used all like fresh spices and organic foods and things like that. So it was all really fresh. Even the Twinkies over there tasted really good. There was like this ingredient, like an Italian MSG or something that was in everything. And, and it just tasted good. And, and it was hard. I mean, people, I try to explain it. And I, like, I don't know. It just was another dimension of eating. It's like the best meals you have here were like all the meals there. That's what heaven's going to be like. There will be an ingredient in your existence before God. And it will be on the new heaven and the new earth. Many of the same things, at least analogies, will be here. But there'll be an ingredient where everything will just taste and be better. That key ingredient is God Himself dwelling with us. And the glories, there'll be glory in everything. You'll know that ingredient and it, it will be indescribable. And you will just, as you experience that, you'll say, that hardship, that was nothing. Look what I get. Look what I get to have forever and ever. That was no problem at all. That's what God calls us to. If the band could come up as we close. We are so privileged. We are so blessed. And we find ourselves in this amazing epic drama, recipients of amazing grace. The prophets wonder. The angels marvel. We experience it. And here we are. God is doing His wonderful work. Uh, one short final illustration. I, I know you guys, some of you who know me know I like J.R.R. Tolkien. He's a Christian author, Lord of the Rings, friend of C.S. Lewis. I love his books because they're so well done and because his Christian faith influenced how he wrote and the themes of the Bible, the themes of God are there and everything. Many of you know the, the story of Lord of the Rings. There's these unlikely heroes in the story. They're half-sized people called hobbits. These guys, Sam and Frodo. And these unlikely heroes find themselves at the center of this epic story in the Lord of the Rings. These unlikely heroes find that their role to play is actually pivotal in what is going on in the story. And they, through them, is worked great good and the defeat of great evil happens through them. Through these unlikely heroes, seemingly insignificant heroes, heroes. In many ways, you and I are like Frodo and Sam. We just have our little contexts that are not that important. Not, not many of us, if any, are ever going to be known beyond so many people. But the Scriptures teach us that we are at the center of His redemptive purposes. God, God is not a showboat. He's perfectly happy to work through obscure people in seemingly obscure situations. He delights in in the mom who cares faithfully for her children. He delights in the one who is unemployed and yet continues to pray, continues to reach out to others. He delights in the one who, even in their cancer, is asking others, how are you doing? 
That's the great epic right there. That's how it's worked out. That's how the wonder of salvation is put on display in those nitty-gritty moments. And so the rest of 1 Peter is not about these grand epics that everyone's going to know about. It's about how to live out this reality in the nitty-gritty. God has called us to this wonderful salvation. So take heart. Take heart as you do your part, as you receive and rejoice in that salvation and walk out its reality amidst your particular trials and ups and downs. God sees you with Christ at the center, but you as part of the center of redemptive history. He's working His purposes in and through you. And as you remember these things, as you recognize this truth, you will know power to go on and to keep on walking. That's what Peter wants. That's what God wants. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, for the wonder of our salvation. Thank You for forgiveness. Thank You for Your presence. Thank You, Lord, that You have designed our lives to put on display the wonders gospel of glorious grace. And thank You, Lord, that we are such privileged recipients of this and participants in what You are doing in the earth. I pray each one here, any that don't know You yet, would repent and turn from the foolishness of life apart from You to run to Your open and loving arms. And all that know You here, Lord, that we would be strengthened in these things. That we might live in this wonderful salvation for Your glory, we pray. In all these areas of life You put us in. We thank You. We pray this in Christ's name.